Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning again. We are beginning a new series uh, this morning as we start the school year. We're starting a new sermon series that will really take us through the entire school year, believe it or not, with a few breaks in between. In the history of our church, we've preached through the Gospel of Matthew and uh, through the Gospel of Luke, but we're going to take another tour through a Gospel, this time the Gospel of Mark. And whenever we do that, we tend to slow down a little bit, take our time, because there's a lot here. And so this morning, we're going to start the beginning of Gospel Mark. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 13 of that first chapter. Uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder as well, and uh, it's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it's on your screen. So just find, uh, find your eye, get your eyes on those words as we read them together at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, okay? Let's hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning from this, uh, this, great, this great text. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay, really quickly, some introductory things about the Gospel of Mark before we get into really what this text is about. Mark was the first of the four Gospels. It was written first. It was written sometime between 65 and 75 AD, so roughly 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death. This is important because generally, biblical scholars say this anyway, generally the closer to actual historical events a recording of those events would be, the more accurate the reporting would be. And if you think the game Telephone, do you ever play the game Telephone when you're little? One person says something to somebody else and every time it gets repeated, it gets distorted. And so the closer to the original set of events, the more accurate the reporting. And so we have Mark's gospel, which is really important. Mark is the shortest of the four gospels. I had somebody tell me this week, that's why it's my favorite. (laughs) You know, it's just no nonsense. If you're not one for details, if you like people just to get to the point, get right to it. That is Mark. He doesn't mess around. He just goes from one thing to the next. And that's the third thing I would say is that it is the most action-packed of the four Gospels. It's fast-paced. It's almost frenetic. There are no long teaching sections like in Matthew and Luke. It's all action. And I think the lesson there for us is that discipleship to Jesus involves knowing, being, and doing. Mark highlights the doing. He wants us to see Jesus' doing, and and because he highlights that, it will be what we focus on, too, as we make our way through this text. Now, there's a biblical phrase to describe what I mean by that doing, and it was in 
both the call to worship and the law passage that we read a little while ago, it, it, the, the prophets talked about the people of God walking in his ways, walking in God's ways. And it describes something more than just obeying the rules. The phrase God's ways refers to something deeper than what he does. It describes the passions and values and convictions and character that become God's action in the things that he does. So to walk in God's ways means that you do what God does, but you also do it for the same reasons, with the same convictions, with the same kind of character that he has. You do it and you do it in the same way, right? You do what God does, you do it in the same way God does. So when the Mandalorian says, this is the way, if you have no idea what that is, ask your kids. He is referring to a whole way of life, to a set of ideals and convictions and disciplines that lead to certain behaviors and actions. The early Christian movement was called the way in the book of Acts. Because there is a way, there is a way for us in light of the inbreaking of God's kingdom into the world. And Mark wrote his gospel to say, this is the way. To help us live in the kingdom, daily doing kingdom things. And here at the very beginning, the very first thing he teaches us, and what we need to talk about this morning as we open this gospel and, and, talk, and begin to, to make our way through it, Mark wants to make sure that we know that this way that he is going to be describing to us is something that you have to be baptized into. Notice, because that really is the thing that groups all of these different parts of the text together. John came to baptize people into it, we're told. Jesus himself, cryptically, kind of strange, Jesus came to be baptized into it. And he promises every single one of us, if we put our faith in him, that he will baptize us with Holy Spirit to be baptized into it. Three baptisms. And baptism just means that there's something in you that needs to be cut away. There's something in us that needs to be washed. There's something that needs to come to an end so that something new can begin. And if you're baptized, if you've been baptized into a church or baptized into the Christian faith, it means that you belong now to a new humanity that is populating the earth with God's new creation. I mean, notice how this gospel begins. Look at verse one of chapter one, the beginning. Does that sound familiar? What's that an echo of? Genesis chapter one, verse one. And so a baptized Christian is a person who's been set apart into a special relationship with God, which means if you've been baptized, you do things differently than everybody else. And you do different things than everybody else. Right? You do both. A baptized Christian, you do different things than everybody else. And you do things differently than everybody else. There is this unmistakable difference. They, anybody could spot you in a lineup. You're a dead giveaway. There's a stamp of God's grace that is on your life that is undeniable. And it's a work that he does in you before he begins to do his work through you. So we see the three baptisms. And if you're going to be a person who walks in God's ways, as Mark is here describing for the people of God, you need to have a spiritual experience that is mirrored by the three baptisms in this text. We see them, the baptism of John, which really teaches us about repentance, the baptism of Jesus, which really teaches us about faith, and then the baptism of the Spirit, which is the promise of spiritual power. We need all three. And so let's walk through the text looking at each of these baptisms quickly as we go through it together. Okay, first, the first baptism here that's mentioned is John's baptism. And you see that in verses 4 through 7. And the main lesson 
of John's baptism is the need for repentance. Mark opens with a quote from Isaiah 40, that famous passage there, which calls upon God's people to make ready for his coming. And uh, it held prophetic significance. The Jews came to believe that before Messiah, which is, of course, what John, what, excuse me, what Mark is writing about, right? The coming of Messiah. The Jews believed that before Messiah came, there would come an Elijah figure. There would be a prophetic voice that would call the people to repentance as a way of making themselves fit and ready for uh, the, taking part in Messiah's campaign of seeing the kingdom of God come into all the world. So John came. We're told, baptizing in the wilderness, verse 4, in his baptism, we're told very clearly, was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? And all of Judea came to be baptized in the Jordan, and they came confessing their sins. Now, here's what this means. If you're going to walk in his ways, you have to, at the very first, at the very beginning, the first thing that you do in order to become a person that is able to do that is you acknowledge your failings and your, and your weaknesses and you seek God's forgiveness. This is, why, this is what the people, excuse me, are doing here. They came, as I said, confessing their sins. They're acknowledging their unworthiness before God and trying to make right with him before Messiah comes so that they would be worthy. They're, they're saying there's a stain that needs to be washed away. And this is the beginning of the spiritual life. When you... Find the grace to admit the truth about yourself that everybody else knows, God knows, and everybody else knows you're the only one that doesn't know. When you call yourself what God calls you, guilty, deserving of death and hell because of the cosmic treason of your sins against the holy God. And what this means for us is that Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He is a savior. He came to save us. He came to save you from your sins, not from your circumstances, from your sins, Matthew says in Matthew 21, verse one to verse, chapter 1, verse 21. You see, the big problem in our life is not our sufferings, it's our sins. And the truth is that God is actually using our sufferings to heal us from our sins. And the call of this text from the prophet is to make yourself as accessible to God as possible. He's saying, remove every obstacle, make straight paths between your heart and God's heart. Make it as easy for him to get wherever he wants to go in your life as you can. Prepare the way of the Lord, verse three. Now naturally, here's what this means, and this, a lot of you are here from out of town, this is not gonna make any sense to you, but if you're a local, you'll get what I'm about to say. Naturally, our hearts are like Dundee Road that way. I, I live back here, I refuse to turn right. Do you remember when Dundee Road this way was like Dundee Road is now that way? That was even worse. But now, now it's paved and beautiful and easy to drive on and wonderful. And John is baptizing people into the work of remaking their hearts from that to that so that God might come and have his way with them. Prepare the way of the Lord. The word is you, uh, we use to describe this is repentance. Now let's distinguish between confession and repentance for a minute because we need to do that because they're not the same. Confession means you acknowledge that you are a center, center, center that, well, you acknowledge that you're the center and that you're a sinner. Confession means you acknowledge it. Repentance means you commit to doing something about it. 
Confession is good, but it's not enough. And sometimes, can I just be honest, we wear the, man, I'm just a big sinner thing like it's a badge of honor. It's not. It's not something to be proud of. It's not something that displays your spiritual maturity that you're able to tell everybody what a big sinner you are. The true test of spiritual progress is not honesty, it's change. And that's the word repentance. Repentance refers to a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. You begin to think differently about something and that new thinking develops into new behavior. And the best definition I've ever heard is the one that I gave you right there in your outline from J.I. Packer, who says, repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. Isn't that great? Sanctification happens when you get a more accurate and thorough sense of your sin or when you learn more and more about who God actually is and who he's made you to be and the wounds in your life and what they've done to you. You see more and more of the beauty of God, the greatness of God. You get clarity in one of those areas or in all three or in some mix. You get some clarity and that clarity brings change. And so you go into this lifetime project of gaining more clarity and seeing more change and gaining more clarity and seeing more change. Repentance refers to a turnaround. You're walking in one direction. You're going this way and it's the wrong way. And then you learn something new and it stops you in your tracks and you turn around and you go back in the opposite direction. Now, if you're walking along the road, say, it's a rather easy thing. You stop. And you turn around, and you just begin to go in the, in the right direction. But if you're on a bike, if you're on a bike, it's a little bit of a longer process. You have to slow down, hit the brake, make sure you turn without falling off. Anybody ever done that? It's not easy to turn on a dime on a bicycle. I've forgotten how to ride bikes in my 40s, I guess. But it's, you know, it's a little precarious. And then it takes a little bit to get back up to full speed going in the other direction. If you're in a car, and you're driving down I you know, I-4, and you miss your exit, what happens? Uh-oh. You got to go quite a ways, and then get off, and try to turn left, and then turn le- two left turns. It's like my worst nightmare, right? I mean, and you got to get back, and then it takes, but what if, what if you're piloting a super tanker in the middle of the ocean, and it takes miles and miles just to slow the ship down where it's slow enough to make the turn, and then the turn is immense, and it takes you way out of your way, and then you have to get back on your original course, and then it's miles and miles until you get back up to full speed. Do you see the point? Some sins are small and easy, some are enormous. They may be so deeply ingrained in us that it feels like turning that super tanker around, and it's a lifetime of work. The issue in the text is not our success. The issue in the text is our readiness. How ready are you in light of what God has come to do in Jesus Christ to enter into a lifetime of gaining clarity and changing? What Mark is introducing us to in this gospel, verse 1, the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world. Just wrestle with that. The coming of Jesus Christ, who is called the Son of God, into the world. It is an event of such enormity that life cannot just go on as it was before. If you believe this to be true, you cannot remain the same. Do you understand what I'm saying? You with me? It is too big a truth to not change you. I love that line in the old Rich Mullins song, I did not make it. Remember what he says? I did not make it. What's he say? It's making me. I didn't make it. It's making me. But here's the thing. 
When it comes to change like this, a lot of times you don't experience that change in real time from day to day. If you're really growing spiritually, a lot of times it feels like you're not getting anywhere, but it's when you look back in the rearview mirror and you say, oh, wow, yeah, okay, now, now I see it. So don't be too hard on yourself. And notice, too, one other thing. Just, I'm kind of peppering these things at you, but notice, notice in the text how all of this happens in the wilderness. It happens on the margin. That word occurs four times in verse 3, verse 4, verse 12, verse 13. Can I say something? I've been to this spot, at least what they think is this spot in Israel. It is not very impressive. It makes the Peace River look like the mighty Mississippi. It's a trickle of water in a desert. Way out in the middle of nowhere. And then we're told, I mean, so it's like it's all happening out in the margins. Then John is described as being clothed with camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey. He's just a weird dude, okay? And you, you add all of it up, and here's what, here's what this text is teaching you. If, if you decide to follow Jesus, you're going to be weird. You add it all up. If you decide to follow Jesus, you're going to be weird. Walking in his ways means going against the norm. But here's the thing. You know what? That's okay. Because weird is prophetic. We need more weird. Thank you. I was hoping somebody would amen that. We need more weird. Forget keep Portland weird. Like, keep Christianity weird, right? That's my motto. God's ways are always eccentric. What's he saying in Isaiah 55? My ways are not your ways. So if you're going to walk in his ways, guess what? You're going to be weird. Because repentance is going to be something that you do a lifetime of. Second, we see not only John's baptism, but there's a second baptism, and it's the baptism of Jesus in verses 9 through 11. And the main lesson of Jesus' baptism is faith, which is really just the other side the other side of, of repentance. And what, we, what I mean by faith is that in order to walk in his ways, you have to be committed to repentance, but you also have to know your need of a substitute. Or let me say it like this. We need to repent, but we even need to repent of our repentance. That's a line from Matthew Henry. It may sound weird. It may sound weird because we said that Mark's gospel is all about the doing, and that's true. It's also true that God's doing always comes first, that our doing is always a response to what he has already done. God goes first because Christianity is grace. And so what we see in the text is that Jesus came to John to be baptized. Now remember, John's ba- here's the quandary that this produces. John's baptism is a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus has no sin. So why is he there to be baptized? Well, Matthew does a deep dive into this dilemma in, in his telling of the scene. And, and as it goes in Matthew, at first... John refuses until Jesus insists, and this is what he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. He says, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So here's what that means. Jesus here was baptized not because he needs to be baptized. He was baptized because we need to be baptized. He was baptized as us in our place because that is why he came into the world, to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died on the cross. He is the second Adam. He is the true Israel. When Adam sinned, In the garden at the beginning, he did not act for himself alone. He represented the whole human race. And we are guilty in Adam's sin. But in his obedient life, Jesus, the second Adam, did not act for himself alone. He represented all who have faith. And so if you trust in him and don't rely upon yourself, then his righteousness, the perfect record of obedience to God that he won through his life, that righteousness is credited to your spiritual account. In the same way that Adam's failure was credited to your spiritual account, Jesus' righteousness is now credited to your spiritual account. He came to fulfill all righteousness. 
to make it possible to be right with God, not through our own efforts, but through faith. And in being baptized, Jesus is incarnating. This is a part of his incarnation. He's entering into the experience of his people. Israel was baptized into the Red Sea and then wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Here in Mark 1, Jesus is baptized and then driven out for 40 days in the wilderness. That's not coincidence. The baptism was an act of solidarity between the Messiah here and his people. And here's what it means. Jesus Christ has taken upon himself our sin debt, though he himself was without sin. And in return, he gives to us all the rights and privileges and blessings and honor of being the beloved of God. That is our gospel. Though we deserve nothing but wrath and hell, he was baptized because we needed to be baptized. But also he was baptized and he came to give us the same experience he had in being baptized. Notice the details. It says, verse 10, the heavens opened, the spirit came down like a dove. And then in verse 11, he heard a voice that said, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Isn't that amazing? God spoke these words. And again, you'll find the same account in Matthew and Luke. Uh, but it's different there. The emphasis is placed on here on Jesus' inner experience. For, for In Luke, for example, it says that the heavens opened. In Matthew, it was a voice that spoke for all to hear. It said, this is my beloved son. But here, the voice speaks directly to Jesus' heart. It says, you are my beloved son. It's a word for him alone. With you, I'm well pleased. In other words, Jesus has given here a revelation, an assurance, a judgment, a verdict that God, his father, was pleased with him, that he was, in fact, the beloved, and that was the source of his spiritual power. And here's the thing, you, you may not know it. You may, be here, you may not know it, but you need a similar experience. Every single person in the room this morning, we need that kind of assurance. We need that kind of verdict that we are God's beloved, and that he loves us, and he's pleased with us like this here. You may not even believe in God. It doesn't matter. He made you for himself, and your heart will be restless until you have this voice speak over your life, these words, until you know deep in your soul that God delights in you as he delighted in Jesus. One of the sad realities of my life these days is I've only got like three more years of watching my kids play sports. I'm going to miss that. It's one of my favorite things. Something to look forward to with grandkids, I guess. Isn't it weird that I'm at that phase of life? But anyway, when my kids were little, and even when they were in middle school and high school, uh, after every play, dads, did you have this experience after every play? They knew exactly where I was in the stands if I wasn't on the field coaching them, if I was on the field coaching them even more so. But after every made shot or every miss, after every pitch it felt like, and in at bat, the pitch would come, and what, immediately what do you think they would do? They'd look and make eye contact, find me, eye contact and find me, right? They'd look and want to know what my reaction was. And I, I don't know whether that makes me a good parent or a bad parent. <laughs> Probably a bad one. I actually think it actually says more about them than it does about me. That it is indicative of the human heart and how desperately we crave affirmation and how desperately we're afraid of disapproval and that a father's smile is a powerful force in the life of his kids. But the one thing I do know is in reality, we're all after the smile of God. We all need to know that God delights in us like this. And here's the surprise. You ready for the surprise? The only thing keeping you from knowing this about your relationship with God is how hard you're trying to earn it on your own. If Jesus 
the eternal beloved son of the father, if he needed these words from the father, don't you think you need them too? And they were given to him because he needed them. But here's what I want you to know. They don't come at the end of your life as a reward for all your effort and sacrifice. Only Jesus is worthy of these words. Only Jesus is worthy of these words. But they are given as a gift to all who trust in him. And you can live your life from these words, not for them. You can live your life from them, not for them. If you believe, if you rest your hope in Jesus Christ alone and not in your own moral effort, then these are your words too. In John 7, 17, Jesus prayed that the world would come to know the truth. And here's, he says, I pray that they would know the truth, that you sent me. I want you to hear this. And that you love them even as you love me. Even as. It's a word that means according to or in proportion to. And here's what it means. Do you know that God loves you the same way he loves Jesus? With the same measure of love. God loves you according to the love that he has for Jesus. And so it has nothing to do with the ups and downs and the good and the bad. It is sure. It is constant. It is lasting. And it's actually a power source for the third thing that we need to finish. But the third thing we see, the third baptism, is the baptism of the Spirit. And that's in verse 8, where John talks about the one coming, Jesus, who would baptize in Holy Spirit. He says, I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the big lesson here is the need for spiritual power. In order to walk in his ways, you need spiritual power. And this is it. I mean, being baptized with the Spirit is the big bang of the Christian life. God, and God intends to do something so expansive. He intends for the rest of your life to be expanding out into kingdom influence. And he means to do something so expansive that it takes an explosion like this to get you started and then to sustain you. Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And here's what I want. Please hear my heart when I say there are too many people who have been baptized with water and not baptized with the Holy Spirit. The one is just a ceremony. It's outward. It's a formality. The other is something that happens internally in truth, in reality, in your life. Too many people who are trying to be good instead of bad. And calling that the Christian life. But a Christian is a person who's done with all of that. A Christian is a person who is spiritually dead and is now alive. And that new life is pulsing through them and animating them into a life of obedience. It's what you see here. That life is what you see here in Mark, in Jesus. It can and should be true of you as well. And so just as we finish, let me, let's look really quickly at a couple of other things. Jesus said this in John's gospel. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And even greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Did you hear that? Jesus said, you're going to do everything I'm doing. You're going to do even greater things than I'm doing because I'm going to the Father. And he went to the Father to do what? To send the Spirit. And so the life Mark displays in the pages of these Gospels is the life of the Spirit. At his baptism, the Spirit descended and rest upon him. Verse 12, what happened? It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, what you need to know immediately is one of Mark's favorite words. He's in a hurry. He's not messing around. Immediately. No time to waste. Immediately. Let's get right to it, right? He's just boom, 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 boom. And this is the way it, it, you read the gospel and you just, you feel like you're out of breath as you read. 
And so it's, you know, I read it, and for some reason, all I can think is, of, is that line from Hamilton. Why do you write like you're running out of time? Day and night like you're running out of time. You know, it's, you read it, and your heart starts to race, and you have to catch your breath. And so if you're an Enneagram 3, this is your book, baby. This is, this is you right here. But Jesus is driven. He's driven, but not by his own desires. It's subtle, because look what it says. It says, the spirit there drove him. He's being, he, he's being internally compelled by something. There's, there's something the spirit's doing in his life. It's a holy, Mark Buchanan calls it a holy must. That phrase has always stuck with me. Uh, he goes on to write in this book called, uh, I forget what the name of the book, Your God is Too Small, Mark Buchanan says, most of our drivenness and anxiousness comes from not really knowing what we must do. So we do a lot of things. We do, them with all, with, we do them all with grim, fretful haste. We do them with panic but no zeal. We have to, after all, get this thing done and get on to the next thing, but we're not sure what we must do. He tells a story about Frank Lloyd Wright who we have a fondness for here in Polk County because of some of the architecture here locally. When he was a boy, he walked with his uncle across a snowy field one morning. His uncle was a driven man, stern and impatient. And when they got to the other side of the field, the uncle stopped and told the boy to come stand beside him. And they turned around and they looked back at their tracks. And the man's tracks in the snow were a straight line, just straight across point A to point B, as efficient as possible. And the boy's tracks you won't be surprised because he was an artist were a mess of wanderings and shufflings and backtrackings and he was all over the place and his uncle said Frank notice how your tracks wander aimlessly and see how my tracks aim directly at their goal there's an important lesson to be learned in that and Frank Lloyd Wright wrote letter later yes I learned the lesson I determined right then not to miss most things in life as my uncle had so don't get the wrong idea when I talk about drivenness in the holy must Mark Buchanan says this, he says, Jesus never made clean tracks in the snow or sand. He went here, he went there. He was moved by seeming whim, chance, and some inward tug of holy instinct. But his zigzagging journey was anything but the anxious rushing about that characterizes our own living. He was possessed by a holy must. And it drove him. It drove him into the wilderness to do battle with Satan, and then it drove him into the Galilee to preach the kingdom, and it drove him from town to town throughout his ministry, and it ultimately, eventually drove him to Jerusalem and to the cross. And you read Mark, and it's chaotic, and it's, it's busy. It's the busiest day you can imagine, not a spare moment from sunrise to sunset. The busiest day that you've had in five years, day after day after day. This is the way. But it's not a life of chaotic and mindless busyness filled with the urgent but trivial. Jesus had been taken hold of. And then he went about his whole life taking hold of that for which he had been taken hold of. Remember that's how the Apostle Paul described his life too? I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. And here's my question. What about you? See, this is why Mark is writing, and so it's why I'm preaching. Has Jesus taken hold of you? That's the real question. Is your heart gripped by the vision of the kingdom of heaven so that you fill your life with kingdom things? A holy must for you, too. You see, repentance, faith, spiritual power, newness of life, captivated by a holy must, these 
These things are the marks, the three marks of the person who's been baptized into the kingdom way, who is the person who is walking in his ways. And so I like the old line uh, from, we sing, we sing the hymn quite often here, uh, where it says, you know, you remember this? Think what spirit dwells within you. Remember these words? Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win you, child of heaven, canst thou repine? And then do you remember what, do you know what the next, we all know that part. Do you know what the very next line in that song is? In light of all of that, think about the spirit, think about the father's smile, think about how Jesus died for you. And then the next line, the next stanza of the song goes, haste thee on from grace, grace to glory. Right, it propels you. Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Because that is a life of walking in his ways. Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by wing, armed by faith, winged by prayer. And so let's pray that the Lord would do that among us. If you would pray with me as we come to his table now this morning. So Father, it's a, fine, it's a balance that I, I really don't even know how to find of it's true, faith in Jesus Christ is resting in his finished work on our behalf. It is resting in, in breathing deeply of the air of grace that he provides for us, but that grace does not leave us with nothing to do. It energizes our life in profound ways so that we go and live a life filled with what we've called a holy must. And we need incredible wisdom and grace, patience with ourselves. We need incredible courage to become people who are not afraid of the hard things, but who step out and say to you, O oh Lord, in light of all that you have done for me, here I am, whatever you would do with me, fill my life with kingdom things that I might be a person who does all that you do and even greater things as you've said, but that does them with the, the strength and the character and the convictions that you provide so that I might be weird for the sake of your glory. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of vision. It takes a lot of wisdom. And we need all those things. And so, as we ponder this morning, this text, would you continue to assure us of your love and to call us into this life of obedience to your commands? And would you, in fact, give us the spirit? Baptize us in Holy Spirit and fire. I don't even know what that would look like. I'm a little scared that if you actually answered that prayer, we'd lose control of things. But even so, do it. Baptize us as a church with Holy Spirit and fire and may the wind of your spirit blow and may the fire of your presence blaze across this room and then across this city and then across this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So here's the thing, in the Bible, when we say we're waiting on the Lord, it doesn't mean we're just sitting on our hands and doing nothing, right? He sends us now into the world, and here's what I would say to you. Let's get some stuff done this week. Amen? You with me? Like, let's fill our lives with kingdom things this week. Let's go, and let's risk, and dream, and dare, and, and be busy with kingdom things. Let's do some stuff. But remember, as you go and try to do stuff, that there's absolutely nothing on the line this week. Do you know what I mean? Like, in all of your doing, there's nothing on the line, because what really matters is God's doing. And that's what this benediction is. It's a promise that in your doing, he will meet with you in your weakness, even in your weakness, and even he'll undo your weak things and turn them into beautiful things that he's creating. So receive this promise of, of good things and good words and good, you know, 
good smiles from the Father towards you as you go and try to get some stuff done this week. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go and go in his peace. Amen.